Give it up one more time for the babies, the babies. I think our uh, director of worship, Cormac, done found his praise team. My, my, my. Well, good to see you all today on this Easter Sunday. I'm telling you, it's already turned out to be my favorite. Got to baptize my youngest boy, Jaden, and got to hang out with you guys. Good to see you all. Good. Good to see you all. For those of you who are guests and visiting, my name is uh, Pastor Brian Loritz. I've had the honor of serving here as the lead pastor officially for 13 months. So we are brand new to the Bay. And um, it has been a complete honor for me to be here. If you've got your devices or your Bibles with you, however you get there, um, you're, you're going to think I'm crazy, but uh, I want to talk about the resurrection from the book of Job. Job. I promise you it's in there. Job chapter 19. I haven't lost my mind. Job chapter 19. I just want to share with you one verse, hang out with you for about 15 or so minutes, um, and then we will conclude our service. Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19. Uh, most of us in this room, we've been to sporting events, and if you've ever been to a professional sporting event, you know how this works. Uh, right before the sporting event, there is always the playing and the singing of the national anthem um, at these sporting events. That's what they do. It is a tradition. Uh, right before tip-off or kick-off, whatever it is, there is always the singing and the playing of the national anthem. For the most part, uh, it's a time when everybody stands, places their head, hands over their heart, and it is a time in which uh, they just silently reflect during this tradition, the singing and the playing of the national anthem. But right after the song is done and tip-off happens and um, the game commences, I promise you no one else is giving a single thought to the national anthem. Steph Curry ain't thinking about it as he's draining another three. Uh, no football player. I started to reference the Oakland Raiders, but I know that's a sore spot for some of you all. Um, no football player is thinking about the national anthem as they're crossing the goal line. The national anthem, watch it now, it's a nice tradition that doesn't impact whatsoever how the game is played. For so many people, that's Easter Sunday. It's a nice tradition. Something maybe we do annually, hang out, get to meet people, go to a nice service, go to brunch later on. But so many people in our world, when the alarm clock goes off tomorrow morning, Easter Sunday will make no difference in how they play the game of life. It's something nice to do. Hear another story about the resurrection. Some of us are even maybe doubting the historicity of the event. But for so many in our society, especially the Bay Area, the resurrection of Jesus Christ does not impact one bit how we play the game of life. I want to show you real quickly, I don't have time to talk about all the ways that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to impact how we navigate the game of life. I want to show you one specific way, though, in which the resurrection matters. If you're here and you would not necessarily call yourself a person of faith, um, you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a Christian, we are so glad you're here. I just want to give you some things to think about. 
because the resurrection absolutely matters universally. Because in the book of Job, Job chapter 19, verse 25, Job says these words, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. How does the resurrection matter to my life? Well, if you've got air in your lungs, you will go through trials, tribulation, and trouble. I don't care if you grew up in the church or if you worship Satan. All of us, inhaling and exhaling, are going to go through something. How does the resurrection matter? Because the resurrection gives us power and hope, even in the midst of life's tragedies, trials, and tribulations. In the 1950s, there was a guy by the name of Glenn Chambers. Glenn Chambers, you don't know that name. Uh, he was a 20-something-year-old young man who was leaving home for the first time. He was going out onto the mission field in, in Peru. That's where he was headed as he was sitting in a Miami airport. Glenn Chambers, this young man in his 20s who never really thought much about death, uh, is a little bit sad because he's leaving his family, but excited about what lies ahead. So he decided, Glenn Chambers did, right before he gets on the airplane, to write his mom a note just to say he was thinking about her, to thank her for her investment in his life, but he couldn't find a piece of paper. The best that he could do is to tear off the edge of a newspaper, to write on the corners of that newspaper his thoughts and reflections about his mother, his thanks for her investment in his life. He dropped it in an envelope, put his mother's address on it, got a stamp, and mailed it right before he boarded the airplane. It's a good thing he did that because a couple hours later, Glenn Chambers' plane crashed into the Peru Mountains. And Glenn Chambers, this 20-something-year-old man who had never thought about death, died. As you can imagine, his mother's heart was ripped out. Her 20-something-year-old son died. It's one of the horrific tragedies of life, things that just shouldn't happen. At the top of the list of things that shouldn't happen, parents should never have to bury children. Some of you all, under the sound of my voice, you've done that. You've buried a child. But Glenn's mother was surprised when a couple days later she goes to the mailbox and there is a letter from her now-deceased son. She rips it open, and the first thing she sees, because Glenn had, had written this letter to her on the edges of a newspaper, the first thing that she saw was in big, bold letters, the word, why? 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 If there's one word that sums up the book of Job, it is the word, why? Why? Here is a man who is just minding his own business one day, and he has to have the most horrific day on record. For in one day, and we know it happens in one day because the Bible in recording these events just kind of says that as one servant was talking to him, another servant came, and as that servant was talking to him, another servant came. So here's one servant giving him the news, look, man, I just got to tell you, you've lost all your camels. And while that servant was talking, another servant comes and says, I've got to give you the news. You've lost all your businesses. 
And while that servant is talking, another servant comes and, and says, I got to tell you, man, you've lost all your children. And to add insult to injury, he's now covered from head to toes with, boil, to, with, with boils. It's one thing after another thing after another thing. Problems did not come by themselves to Job. They, they came in waves. Ever been there? A man by the name of James McDonald's been there. He's a colleague of mine who's written a wonderful book called When Life is Hard. He talks about a Job-like season in his own life. When James McDonald says, in one season I get diagnosed with prostate cancer, and at the same time we're in the midst of this building fund at the church, and we're constructing the church, but we find out that due to faulty steel picked out by the contractor, the building is collapsing and we're on the hook for $20 million dollars. As if that's not enough, he finds out that his mother has a debilitating disease. And if that's not enough, his beloved son gets in a car accident and breaks his neck. One thing after another, after another, after another. Ever been there? Our family has. I don't know about how it happens in your family, but problems never come to my house by themselves. They always bring their aunties and uncles and play cousins and have a little family reunion, matching T-shirts and everything, right, on my front doorsteps. Such is life. Problems come. I don't care how many letters behind your name you have. I don't care if you've got an MBA or a PhD. I don't care if you graduated magna cum laude, summa cum laude, or thank you, laude. Problems come. It is a fact of life. This is Job's plot when we come to the story. All this happens, and then, of course, as any good friend does, his friends start to show up. And the first seven days are going really well when his friends come to town, because the Bible says they just sat there in silence. By the way, when you are trying to minister to people who are grieving, don't feel like you got to come in with some kind of a Bible verse and have all the answers. Sometimes the best thing you can do is to sit down and shut up and show up. But then they start bumping at the gums. They start asking him questions. And the essence of their question is, come on, bruh, what did you do? Surely you did something. I mean, all this doesn't happen unless... God is mad at you. But Job says, I haven't done anything. I don't, I don't know why this is happening to me. In fact, Job is actually right because at the beginning of the story, the Bible actually describes Job as being perfect and upright. In other words, nothing in the text suggests that Job did anything to deserve the hell that he went through. In fact, if you just read the story, what you'll understand is that God is just using Job to display his glorious power over Satan. But the trial really isn't about Job. It is about the glory of God. God, in the words of Tupac, ain't mad at him. Did I just quote Tupac on Easter Sunday? That's a good word for someone in the house today because maybe you are in a Job-like season yourself. Maybe you've been wondering, what did I do to make God mad at me? The answer is, 
God ain't mad at you. In fact, if you are in Christ, the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation. He's not mad at you. God's not copping an attitude. He's not exacting vengeance on you. It's not the God that we serve. But in this life, the Bible says, we will have trouble. But what does this have to do, though, with the resurrection, Pastor? Everything. Many decades ago, there was a psychiatrist by the name of Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a Jew who was serving time in a Nazi death camp during the Holocaust. While in this Nazi death camp, this psychiatrist, Viktor Frankl, was perplexed as it relates to why some Jews psychologically were able to make it through the Holocaust and why other Jews psychologically found themselves broken beyond repair. He wanted to know why did some people make it psychologically and others did not. He chronicled his findings in a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in this book, he says these words, quoting from Nietzsche. If you get nothing else I say, get this. Viktor Frankl concludes, if a man has a why for living, he can stand almost any how. I'll give that to you again. Viktor Frankl says, if a person has a why for living, they can stand almost any how. The idea here is all of us will go through tragic situations in life. That's our how. We'll go through seasons of unemployment, maybe. We'll go through seasons of marital stress and struggle. We'll go through seasons of financial difficulty. We'll go through seasons of health crisis. Those are the hows of life. And I don't care who you are, you'll go through it. Christians don't get a pass from difficulties in life. But what makes the Christian stand out versus those who don't know Christ is even though we may go through the same situation, we have an incredible why. Our why is Jesus Christ. To the Christian, we never go through it alone. It's exactly what David said in Psalm 23. Hear his how. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. His how. I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. That is his why. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now here's Job, covered from head to toes in boils, buried ten kids, ten caskets, ten funerals. Here's Job, having lost all of his businesses and money. And yet, what does he say in the midst of life's tragic circumstances? I know my Redeemer lives. So how does the resurrection apply to your life? Why should I consider giving my life to Jesus Christ? Don't consider giving your life to Jesus Christ because some charlatan TV preacher may have told you if you do, you'll never have trouble. That is a lie. But consider giving your life to Jesus Christ because even when trouble hits, you will never be alone. He will be with you and will give you whatever you need 
to make it through. Here's Job. Job says, covered from head to toes with boils. Here is Job losing all of his business. Here is Job going through a health crisis, a family crisis. And what does he say? I know my Redeemer lives. Here's Job. This word know, it speaks of a knowledge that comes by experience. This ain't a PhD kind of knowledge that comes from Stanford. It's not an academic kind of knowledge that comes just from reading up on something. No, this is a big mama kind of knowledge. It is a Medea kind of a knowledge. It is a grandmama kind of a knowledge who may not have had the world's best education, but she's walked with him and she's talked with him. A long life's narrow way. This is a knowledge that comes from the school of hard knocks. It is a knowledge that is tried and tested and true. But here's Job. He didn't feel like saying this. Job felt depressed. He felt down. He felt discouraged. And yet in spite of how he felt, Job said, I know my Redeemer lives. Abundant life, I've said this to you before, but let me say it one more time. When going through life situations, when going through the tragic howls of life, always let what you know trump how you feel. Job says, I feel discouraged, but I know he lives. I feel down, but I know he lives. I feel depressed, but I know he lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. Someone needs this. You need to be able to say, I know my Redeemer lives as you're going through another round of chemo. You need to be able to say, I know my Redeemer lives as you're dealing with the heartbreak maybe of the aftermath of divorce. You need to be able to say, I know my Redeemer lives as you are yet again looking for another job. You need to be able to say, I know my Redeemer lives as you're wondering how you're going to pay the mortgage. You need to be able to say, I know my Redeemer lives because you can rest assurance that if God resurrected a dead Jesus, he can heal you of cancer. He can pay your mortgage. He can get you the job because our Redeemer lives. Here's the truth that we are forced to confront as Cormac and the band comes. Here's a truth that we must understand that sometimes the greatest gift God can ever give us is the gift of trouble. Someone once said, we often turn to God when our foundations are shaking only to discover it is God who is shaking them. Someone is here today you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, and yet there are things in your life that maybe aren't going the way they should. And you've tried everything you can think of to make it better, but maybe it hasn't gotten better because you haven't tried everything, and the one thing you haven't tried is Jesus. Jesus is standing here today. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 3 of Jesus, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would hear my voice and answer the door, I will come in and will sup with him and he with me. 
I pastored for 12 years in Memphis, Tennessee. One of the most heartbreaking things about my pastorate was looking up in the balcony on Sunday mornings. You see, Memphis, Tennessee has something called St. Jude's Children's Hospital. There would be people who would come from all over the world dealing with kids who had cancer, some kind of debilitating disease. And they would show up on Sunday morning. They would sit in the corner of the balcony. The kids would have bald heads, five-year-old kids with masks over their face. I remember one such kid, kid by the name of Nolan. I remember going to meet with Nolan as he was moments away from death. Cancer had spread to his bones. And I'm looking at his mama, Jeannie, and I said to Nolan, Nolan, this does not have to be the end for you. For Jesus Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, though you die, yet shall you live you can live for all eternity. I said, Nolan, right now, maybe God, maybe, and we're praying that he pulls off a miracle, Nolan, but maybe God has allowed you to experience this so that you could hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Nolan, would you want to invite Jesus Christ to come into your heart and life? And Nolan blinked his eyes right there on that bedside. And I prayed with him the sinner's prayer. And as I was praying for Nolan, his mama Jeannie, standing in the corner of the room, started repeating that prayer after me. And both got saved. Moments later, Nolan died. Jeannie said, Pastor, you've given me hope that though I've said goodbye to my son, if it is indeed true what you said, I will see him again because Christ lives in him and Christ lives in me. Oh, friends, what we're talking about, no Tesla can satisfy. What we're talking about, no house or zip code can meet. What we're talking about, no one night stand can truly scratch you where your soul itches. But what we're talking about is something that goes so far above and beyond and maybe God brought you here out of trouble or tradition. I don't care how you got here, but you're here. And today God is saying, I sent my son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for you. And I knew everything you would ever do to break my heart and everything you are doing and will ever do. And here's what I say about all your sins, past, present, and future, paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. In just a few moments, I want to pray. But as I'm going to pray for you, I want you to know that somewhere around there in your chair or maybe as you walked in, there is a, a little card you should have received or you have access to. It's just a simple prayer about how you can make the greatest decision of your life, a decision that Nolan made, a decision that Jeannie made. It is a decision that, that Job made, a decision that David made, a decision that James McDonald made, a decision that Glenn Chambers made. It is a decision to have God at the center of your life. I want to say a little prayer, the same prayer I prayed for Nolan, moments away from death, the same prayer his mama repeated after me. 
And I want to invite you now to repeat this prayer after me if you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. I didn't ask about what church you attend. Church membership can't get you into the kingdom. Only Jesus can. I didn't ask if you gave money to the church. You can't buy your way into the kingdom of God. But there's one who's already paid your way. His name is Jesus. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I want to give you a chance to say yes to Jesus. If you would say yes to Jesus, would you just repeat this prayer after me? You can either do it out loud or within the quietness of your heart. Dear God, thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. I confess to you, God, that like everyone in here, including the preacher, I have messed up. I have sinned. I have fallen short. But thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. Thank you that on the third day, he arose again, giving me new life. I invite you now to come into my heart and life by the person and power of your Holy Spirit. Clean me up. Make me new. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.